Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Lael Duncan and host Steve Heiling titled, When the End is Near, the Art and Science of Compassionate Care. Hello, everybody. It's a nice, intimate group today, and I think almost everybody looks familiar. One of the um, kind of subsets of the talks we've been doing is the end of life series. And I, this, I would say, fits into that, although that's not all we're going to talk about. But I'm very pleased to have an old friend and good colleague be able to join us when I learned some time ago that she had actually moved to West Marin, although still working. I said, perfect, that'll be easy. It wasn't easy. She's very busy, and it was hard to set this up, so I'm very glad that it's finally happened. Uh, Dr. Lael Duncan, who has practiced uh, medicine a lot, has worked in various capacities. I'm sure you saw it in the announcements for here, trying to improve end-of-life care and compassionate care, the Coalition for Compassionate Care, which is a statewide network, very active. Uh, she is one of the leaders in that, the medical leaders in that. And I think we met years ago, we were working on um, the post issues yeah. as well, right? So we'll get into that a bit too. So please welcome Dr. Lael Duncan. Steve, it's really a pleasure to be here. I have to say I was really looking forward to um, having a chance to, to chat with you, of course, and also to, to share and get to know the community better. So it's really, it's, a, it's definitely a win-win for me as well. Right. We were just taking a quick walk around. She's very familiar with the work of Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who, of course, has been here at Commonweal, ran her work here for decades as well. So... I want to start just so people can get an idea of who you are and how you came to be who you are in a sense. So let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell us just where you were born and raised? And, uh, and, and my funny winding path. Yes. So I was actually uh, raised in, in Anchorage, Alaska. My family on my dad's side uh, was uh, a, sort of a pioneer family there in, in the late 1800s. Mm. And um, my father ultimately went to the University of Washington, where he attended uh, college and law school, and met my mom. And they moved back and settled in Anchorage. And so I lived mm -hmm. there until I went away to college. And, and where was that? Uh, originally, I went to Brown University in Rhode Island for a mm -hmm. couple of years. And then I took a little bit of time off. And then I finished my biology degree at the University of Washington and stayed on there for medical school. Mm -hmm. So did you know when you first showed up or did you decide to go to medical school? Good what, question. what inspired that? Um, I was involved in dance and performance at the time workshops and became very intrigued with biology of movement and kinesthetics and some other things. And so when I was in college, I started taking neurology and neurobiology courses. I thought at first I was headed more towards a PhD, but I realized that uh, pathway quickly became ver a very narrow focus for an area of study and that I much more wanted to engage with individuals and also groups of groups of people, actual people, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to just cells right. in a Petri dish. And um, yeah, so I started thinking seriously about medical school at that time and and then headed off in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then during medical school, were there signature events or people who set you on the path of what you decided to specialize in? Yes, but not right away. So... 
There's a two-part answer to that question. So intellectually, I had uh, mentors and role models in medical school, and I think I quickly gravitated towards internal medicine, I think because it seemed like there was the most to learn there, which is how I was at that time. And and then throughout residency, um, I um, continued uh, strongly in internal medicine and became interested in infectious diseases. I think at that time I was interested in volunteering overseas, which I had done. And during medical school, I spent some time in China studying Asian medicine and trying to understand the differences between East-West philosophy in terms of the body and, and the mind and the spirit and the seasons and all of that. And, uh, but then my, most of my medical career was pretty, pretty traditional, uh, internal medicine and then infectious diseases. And at that time, of course, uh, we were, we were, uh, very much in the, um, early to middle years of HIV. And that is one of the reasons I think I sort of gravitated that direction. There was a fascinating amount of science and tremendous opportunity to really save a lot of young lives. So I did a lot of work with um, hepatitis and HIV patients in my early career. Where, where, where was this? Uh, back east, back east mostly. Oh, yeah. yeah, back east and then, and then in the state of Washington mm-hmm. uh, in private practice. When I was in medical school, my mother was diagnosed with, uh, with, with breast cancer. And she, she actually had been diagnosed when, when I was in high school and was treated for early stage disease. And then she had a recurrence when I, when I was in medical school and developed pretty severe metastatic disease and, and, and passed away from that at that time. And I did not have any knowledge of hospice or palliative care at that time. I, I did not even, none of us knew what grief support was. Um, I, like many of you know, you, you, you never get over or resolve these, these episodes in your life. You, you, you go on and you go forward and you try to integrate, I think, what, what has happened. Uh, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of physical and emotional suffering during that time, I think for everyone in our family. And, and I would say that it, it, it didn't all resolve. Mm -hmm. So... That was a really deep and profound experience for me and, and impacted my journey through, through my residency and, and on moving forward. But I, I believe I didn't really see it as my true path or my deep area of passion until I had been out working in the field a little bit. And I began to see this same experience of disconnectedness and emotional trauma in the face of serious illness or at end of life happening for so many families. And I woke up to it, not as my own individual experience of suffering, but as a manifestation of our dysfunctional system. And I started to look at that time for ways to move upstream and to try to impact the flow of patients and families so that they would flow more in the line of person-centered care and mitigate some of that potential uh, stress and trauma rather than just what I would still say is care as usual um, that often is is not optimal. 
for that patient and family. And that's when I became interested in the pulse form. The pulse form was just being released. And all of the talk around the pulse form was all about patient's goals and values and trying to understand their preferences and how that should unfold. And that just resonated really deeply with mm -hmm. me and ultimately was my first step towards advocacy and education. But you were, so you were practicing general internal medicine as I you was saw practicing it for, infectious yeah. disease specialty medicine yeah, yeah. and it was also doing some internal medicine and hospitalist medicine consulting I did not do outpatient internal medicine per se except for some of my long-term um, patients right. you know well you mentioned the HIV epidemic um, mm -hmm. anybody who was involved in that in those earlier years experienced a lot of mortality and, yep. and so forth so yeah. it yeah. sounds like that was part of you were already yeah going in that direction. Very so. much so, very much so. Wouldn't you say too that in the last decade or so, certainly in the broader society, and we can talk about that, but in medicine itself, really been a much more focused now. I mean, the specialty palliative care didn't mm -hmm. exist that long ago. Nope. I mean, nope. it was something people did without calling it that or without formal training, et cetera. But it is now, um, can you describe a little bit about what that means? Um, sure. As opposed to, say, there's hospice care, there's palliative care, you know, the, the differences. Yes, that's a great question because a lot of people confuse right. that, as you know. And understandably, I think um, palliative care is really a model for care delivery, I think is the best way to think of it. In the same way that um, there's a model for how to deliver primary care, preventive medicine, and so on. And what palliative care is, sort of by definition, is... Uh, team-based medicine that attends to all forms of suffering that a patient and family may experience. So, and that's whoever you define as your family, right? So that could be related by blood, birth, or marriage, or, or not. And um, it addresses, it's intended to address all of your needs. So physical needs, but also psychological, spiritual, and existential um concerns that that evolve during illness it's most applicable and appropriate for patients facing serious illness and, and you know definitely is needed uh, as we approach end of life and you could say that hospice care really is the final manifestation of palliative care at the end of life where we have uh, chosen to focus purely on uh achieving a quality of life that is sufficient and maximum according to what we have available at that time. And we have stepped away from a focus on curative treatment or even treatment that's intended to prolong um, life or, or continue things in the status quo when we are anticipating end of life. But upstream from that, palliative care can be woven into regular and routine care and curative care and aggressive care and transplantation and all these other things where you're on that care pathway that may be aggressively curative and yet you have an extra layer of support around you to help you cope, manage, understand, and to keep those treatments in alignment with what's most important to you as an individual or to your family or um, to your highest highest goals and values. And that can be delivered in a very simple way with 
extra nursing and social work support, or it could be delivered in the setting of a complete and full model of palliative care, which would include um, a physician or nurse practitioner specialist uh, with, with extra training in that area, a social worker, a chaplain, often a psychologist, um, and maybe even a pharmacologist that might be involved in that whole team of palliative care. And that type, that team construct is available these days in most um, tertiary medical centers, most of the big medical centers, some of the medium-sized medical centers. And then what you find in other places in rural communities or smaller mid-sized communities is, you know, could be, could be anything from just a lone social worker or maybe no one who's really organizing a palliative care program to, to something as robust as you might find in a tertiary care center, depending on the setting. And that's what uh, folks now, particularly at the California Healthcare Foundation and, and elsewhere, are trying to grow. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I refer to it as a movement, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, within, within the healthcare system. It's very interesting in the, the hospital where I, I'm on the ethics consult team, we're called in it late... Usually there's conflict going on, it's end of a life stuff. And after you hear the entire case presentation mm-hmm. and ask a few questions, the first question is often, have you had a palliative care consult? And if not, why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. it can actually get rid of some of the other issues because you've amped up the, the appropriate kind of care. Exactly. And I think the reason that is, as you point out, is that you've amped up the appropriate care. In other words, you've attended to um, the symptoms of the suffering and distress for that family or patient unit. And you've also uh, provided appropriate layers of, of support in terms of answering some of the questions and re- maybe refocusing the care. Now, any movement often implies some distance. Mm. Um, what kind of roadblocks and... and uh, obstacles do you encounter in trying to get this spread out into more settings and with, I mean, starting even with uh, medical education? Wow. Um, Lots. So the main challenges with achieving the goal of patient-centered palliative care for everyone everywhere have to do with resources, both human and and logistical, um, and Uh, payment models to support the implementation, which is really, really huge. These are issues that are being uh, addressed at the national level as well as the local level. And in our own state, we've recently had a passage of some legislation that specifically allows nurses who work at hospice organizations to also um, supply palliative care nursing Uh, skills and services to patients who are eligible, depending on a described list of criteria that a payment plan or a program may define. And what that has done in some counties and in some areas, and this is part of the growing movement, is that some hospice organizations are starting to care for patients further upstream under the name of, under the umbrella of palliative care services and to provide uh, more services for those patients that are pre-hospice, but in need, obviously in need of this, they can benefit from this care model. Right, so the, I mean, just so you know, the first uh, requirement for hospice is basically a, some, a physician certifying that you're expected six months or less of life. So this is before that even. 
Right? Yeah. 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 And again, while you're possibly or probably still pursuing cure, cure-based uh, care or cure-focused care. And so things like that are starting to happen. We've also seen SB 1004, which is another piece of legislation a couple of years ago that um, public health departments are looking at because it, it, it mandates that some form of palliative care be made available to the Medicaid population across the state. Uh, but again, resources and funding aren't clearly defined in, in terms of how that should happen. But these concepts are now widely on people's radar screens so that the folks who are in the C-suite or who are heading up the managed Medicaid uh, programs and such are aware that this is now going to be considered a a quality measure, if you will, for for care for serious illness, for end-of-life care. It isn't yet. We can't really be too firm about the mandates because the resources, the manpower, the funding just really physically aren't there in many places. But systems and organizations and payment plans are, are starting to look at this. And we're seeing some novel relationships come out of it, such as a, a payer, um, like a, a large uh, commercial insurance, health insurance payer may partner with many of their uh, community area providers and say, we will pay you to deliver palliative care services for these types of patients. And so they're trialing these these different model programs to see how they can cover, uh, cover palliative care services. Why would the plans be interested in that, you might ask? Well, it actually aligns with their financial bottom line, <laughs> which is obviously why they're you know mostly interested. But it also is good, high-quality care. And this has been shown over and over again. We absolutely know that, for example, hospice care is the best high-quality care that you can offer to someone near the end of their life. There isn't a better model for care for those patients. And um, the same with palliative care. Also... We find that with better, and this will come as no surprise, with better outpatient management, with a more focused ability to manage patients and families in the home setting and to attend to their acute and chronic needs via telephone or video conference or home nursing visits, many, many hospitalizations get avoided. And those are incredibly taxing financially, logistically on the family, of course, and, and also burdensome overall to, to, the, to the statewide or national healthcare system. And we know, looking ahead, that healthcare dollars are uh, really important for, for all of us to save and conserve over time. And so the skillful application of services where they're most needed to minimize costs and, and suffering for the family is, is critically important. And palliative care really does that by avoiding what are obviously avoidable hospitalizations and other unnecessary mm-hmm. forms of discomfort. Mm-hmm. You still encounter resistance or even conflicts among specialties, among other physicians in trying to get people to shift the goals of care mm-hmm. with patients from curative to palliative or however you want to define it. Yes, we do, and far more than than I would like to see. Um, I think, you know, one of the most painful stories that 
I tend to hear over and over again or even witness myself with friends and family is uh, the story of the the oncology patient that uh, just doesn't have an opportunity to to learn about palliative care options or or to learn about hospice and then it's a big fire drill all of a sudden when oh my gosh we're quote unquote giving up and I that just breaks my heart because we never don't care for people we always care for people what we're but what we can do is sort of shift the goals of the treatment to to really help that person and and many many of our specialist physicians and I understand why they 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 often don't notice when a patient is sort of tipping beyond that very very difficult to define place of maintaining some quality of life while still pursuing aggressive care versus rapidly losing quality of life and truly running the risk that ongoing aggressive or cure-oriented care at that time will very likely shorten life. Right. And, and, and as you know, you've seen the data because we've talked about it. Patients who are admitted to hospice programs often do well enough quite simply to graduate and go back and get more, <laughs> you know, more treatment. Um, that That's how well it works. So... Uh, there are lots of things that we're not doing right. There are there are obstacles. Um, providers aren't, especially our generation, palliative care didn't exist as a specialty when I trained, so I didn't learn about it. And, uh, and, it, and many folks out there just don't understand how it can work with curative treatment. They're also concerned about losing control over their patient. Um, and... Some programs are very, very much invested in, in their survival of their patients. And that's great if that's 100% what the patient and the family needs and wants at that time. But we have to be sensitive to the fact that at some point that patient and family may need to understand their other, other options. I think one of the kind of symptoms of this in the system is that in the United States, at least as of... Not so many years ago, the average length of stay in a hospice was two weeks. People were getting there just in time to die. Whereas and very if, often, three days. Yeah, or less. or less. Whereas if you go to Europe, Japan, Australia, most Western nations, it's two months. So they're getting there in time to actually help them. Yeah. You know, uh, so um, a subset of palliative care, et cetera, I just want to mention, because it's talked about so much, is pain yeah. relief and pain. The, the, the tension now between uh, adequate pain relief and uh, addiction issues. Mm. It's obviously we have this uh, opiate yeah. abuse uh, epidemic, which is uh, California hasn't been hit as hard as much of the other part of the nation, but in much of the nation, it's just a, a yeah. nightmare. They got my, my friend, he's been done a talk here, Dave Smith, who's an addiction medicine specialist, founder of the Hate Clinic. He calls it the hurricane, epi mm. hurricane of opioid abuse. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that in palliative care, is this something that, that fear now in the various policies that are coming and recommendations, is, that, is, is there a change in, in adequate pain relief? Do people feel worried about being attacked for prescribing too much? Uh, yeah, so people are worried. Um, providers are worried. Firstly, they're worried about access because 
Yeah. Uh, some of that? the pharmaceutical companies, quite honestly, are just getting out of producing these medications because of the risk that has become uh, forefront in the media, as we're seeing. And that's a problem because there actually are shortages of some of the more common fast-acting, even emergency medications that that treat patients who are coming mm-hmm. coming in quite quite in crisis. And to not have those medications on hand as what really is kind of a backlash of this change in uh, scope and refocusing of regulations is, is very disturbing. So um, there's a little bit of a throwing the, the bathwater and the baby out with, with that. Mm-hmm. We're trying to clamp down on inappropriate overuse of opioids and what's happening alongside of that is less use of opioids, uh, even even in terms of availability for, for patients who genuinely need them. And arguably for patients who truly are in hospice care or have a foreseeable horizon towards end of life, the risk of the of problems related to quote unquote tolerance or addiction is in my mind, fairly minimal when compared to the potential for avoidable pain and suffering in the months, years, days, and weeks preceding a death event. Uh, And yet those same patients, those same providers are now facing the same types of regulation changes, requirements for um, different pathways for prescribing medications, uh, being uh, tracked for exactly how much they're prescribing and what they're doing has become somewhat cumbersome. And if patients are, as they are now, required to um, only receive for the fast, for some of the fast-acting or medium-acting opioids, to my understanding, and don't quote me on this because um, I, I, I'm not 100% certain, but um, it's, it's changed how many you can dispense at a time. So imagine if that's actually your medication that you take, like a thyroid medicine or a blood pressure medicine, every day, every week, every month. Now you have to go to the pharmacy every 10 days or two weeks to pick it up. That becomes very cumbersome, especially for patients who have significant burden from disease. So... Um, <coughs> Hopefully there'll be some carve-outs or some workarounds or some special right. eligibility or, you know, there will, but we're seeing the pendulum swing in a direction right now that I think does, uh, does make some challenges for those trying to manage pain. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of discussion about this, as you know, I mean, yeah. within the, the medical associations that, you know, specialty specific thresholds and policies would make much more sense. Make much Obviously, more sense. a dermatologist is going to have an entirely different prescribing for yeah. opioids, if at all, from an oncologist or a palliative care specialist, right. you know, and so right. it's crazy to, uh, to use a term, clinical term, crazy to, yeah. <laughs> to uh, Well, it seems very unreasonable. It. it seems very unreasonable. Yeah, yeah. and but people are getting letters saying, you you know, we, we need to talk to you, you're doing too much. It makes, you know, it, it's like something hovering over your head. It's like, do I really want to do this, even though I believe that the patient is, is it's warranted? Um, you've just written a paper. One of the, the journals that I work on and publish is the San Francisco mm, Medical mm-hmm, Journal. Mm-hmm. And Lael has just, the next issue is going to be on all sorts of ethical issues. And whenever you ask nowadays for, uh, you know, articles on ethical issues, it's always end of life care stuff, almost <laughs> always, you know, almost all of them. Yeah, and, a lot of uh, questions there. Yeah, a lot of change. So 
your focus in that note was about patient communication. Yeah. And in a sense, this is like prevention too, in terms of getting mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. trouble. So um, the whole movement of modern medical ethics, to my point of view, has been about empowering patients to have better communication and determine their care yeah. more. And so there's like a, there's a pendulum there too, of course, in some ways, but there are tools now uh, for quite some time for trying to guide your end of life care. And so, I mean, the first subset, well, there was a, a national act called the Patient Self-Determination Act that said that everybody needs to be informed about these, but mm -hmm. advanced directives, various forms and things you can use. Do you wanna say something about the most valuable use of those? That's a planted question, Steve, because you know that's my favorite topic. I know. <laughs> um, so as Steve knows, I do a lot of my work around advanced care planning and advanced directives and educating patients and families. And this, this is across the board. So from the healthy 18-year-old leaving home for the first time who needs an advanced directive in case he or she's in a car accident or a diving accident or has a head injury or something like that, all the way up through how do we actually plan for an end-of-life journey uh, for someone and, and try to minimize the, the stress and regret and do uh, what we call anticipatory guidance and help them sort of sort that out. So the correct understanding, use and application of advanced directives is sort of near and dear to my heart and, and very, very important. I really believe every active independent or non-independent, every active, clear-thinking adult who has mental capacity to do so should have one of these forms and should have chosen their healthcare agent as written on the form by really understanding what the role of that person is going to be and looking at kind of a little checklist to make sure that that person's going to be the right person for them. The reason I say that is because we all think, you know, maybe the person who loves us the most or maybe the person we've lived with the longest and all that, we, it seems like a natural choice to choose that person. But in fact, that person might not be your best advocate or your strongest advocate during times of crisis. And in particular, during times of crisis when someone's in the hospital. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Lael Duncan and host Steve Heilig. So I teach a lot about that, the thoughtful choice of a healthcare agent and how to complete and use and share an advanced directive. And then as we mature through, through life or through illness at whatever age that happens, uh, the decisions that we are faced with in terms of planning they do change a little bit and certainly they get deeper. There gets to be more of an emotional and existential component as we might be considering at some point our own mortality or whether or not we want to uh, make use of any potential uh, life-sustaining treatments that might be attempted for us. And how we make those choices, I, I think a lot about that. And how do we inform patients and families with the information that they need to make the choices that are right for them because it's not my desire to impart my, my view to someone. It's my desire to understand what their view is and how their goals and values would guide the choices that they make. And that's really kind of the heart of advanced care planning. And it's not, as I was saying at a training yesterday, actually, um, it's not one conversation and it's not one document. It's many conversations and a couple of different documents at different times throughout your whole life. 
It should be as regular and routine as our flu vaccine. If Steve were my patient and I were seeing him once a year, I might say, hey, Steve, is there anything we need to do to refresh your advanced directive? And he might say, oh, gosh, yeah, the person that I had named in my directive now has moved to Cincinnati and I'd like to have someone closer. And I might say, well, does that person still have a cell phone? Yes, they do. Well, that might work out fine. But what if somebody is truly going overseas for a volunteer mission or something? Then maybe we want to have an alternate or a backup. And all these little nuances that might impact how and who you, you have on your document are important to consider. And then the last document that we would use in California, if again, if patients and families want it, is the POLST form, which is really, really important, particularly for, um, for patients who want to avoid certain things. I think that's critical uh, because it is a medical order. It is fundamentally different from an advanced directive. Yeah, so it's let's we'll, not we'll, an advanced directive. Yeah, we'll, let's let's come back to that. So on mm. the advanced directive, you said a couple of forms. Yeah. What are your favorites? What do you recommend if Ooh. you were going to for actual <sighs> versions? There are many mm. different versions many of different these. Versions. So there, there's the advanced directive itself. There's I mean there's durable power. You know which, yeah. what do you recommend? If okay. Ideally, so there are different names for this document. I believe the legal name is durable power of attorney for healthcare. Yes. That's the document, okay? So that comes in many different forms. And in California, there isn't one particular form that's legal. Some of them you've seen are booklets and they have little pictographs and yeah. graphics and things. And others are very statutory in appearance, almost legal, kind of maybe intimidating for, I think, for many of our populations. Um, so I think what's important is that you have a document that's going to work for you. And what might work for me or for you might not work for someone in the audience. Maybe they don't resonate with the language there or it feels too distant or something. So we want to find a tool that's going to work for those uh, individuals. In particular, the big differences are probably the young and healthy crowd that really just need to name a decision maker, a medical decision maker in their document and maybe give some thought to what kind of care they might want if they had um, extreme trauma or a, a, a permanent head injury versus, say, somebody with more advancing disease who is filling out their document for the first time and yet they already have a serious or even potentially terminal illness. As they fill out their document, they may want to learn about and reflect on and think about life-sustaining treatment choices and in that way prepare themselves maybe for getting ready to think about a post form, something mm -hmm. like that. So some of these documents contain information and places where you can write in the types of care that you would want um, and your thoughts about life-sustaining treatments or resuscitation, which we call CPR. Um, but those comments are really intended to help your decision maker. They are not really legally enforceable. They are legally a representation of your, your wishes, but you're empowering the person named in the document to stand in your shoes and speak with your voice and make decisions for you. So if they're in a situation that, say, nobody anticipated, their, their role is to look at that situation with your eyes and to try and use your value system to make a decision for you, which might be exactly what you've written in your document, or in fact, in that situation, if it were unexpected or unusual, might, might not be quite what was written in that um, uh, comment part of your advanced directive. And that's different from a POLST form. So the POLST form, which is specifically intended to be used by 
or to be offered to individuals who are quite frail, elderly, um, or fairly advanced illness, um, we use the surprise question, which has really sort of been validated. If you're thinking about an individual that you know, um, and you say to yourself, gosh, would I be surprised if so-and-so had really a frightening, maybe even life-threatening event uh, in the next year or two? If your answer to that question is no, then that person is technically eligible for a POLST form. The reason that is, is because the POLST form is, in, is mainly a community form. It's, it's for you to have in the community, in the event of an emergency that you can't speak for yourself, that when the ambulance and the EMS personnel arrive, they will know what to do. And they can act based on that form. And we should say, we've been, we talk about so much that we didn't say, yeah. P-O-L-S-T, POST, Physicians Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Yes, so that's the pink. How many of you see, have seen yeah, the pink form? It's kind of have a bright, usually, usually in a bright Very color. Very bright pink, yeah. Very bright pink form. So, and that's quite different from an advanced directive. If the EMS services shows up at the home of somebody who has collapsed in the home and somebody comes out and says, well, I have this advanced directive and here my mom said she didn't want um, uh, to have uh, compressions on her chest, the EMTs will say... Ah, you know, they'll try to sort it out, but if there's any, you know, they're more likely to do CPR in that setting until a physician can come in and make a determination about that patient's wishes and decide whether or not we're going to do full resuscitation or not. The reason that is, is because the EMS teams, they work based purely on, on judgment and protocol driven by their protocols. And their protocol does not include interpretation of an advanced directive. But their protocols do include, and this is why the POLST form was developed, their protocols do include the ability to, to provide care and services based on what it says on the POLST form because that is a signed medical order signed by a doctor. Advanced Directive is a document owned and signed by the patient. See the difference? So um, that's one of the special things about the POLST form is it really can prevent if folks have, have, have interventions that they do not wish to receive, in particular, if they have a natural death event and they do not want that process interrupted or even potentially reversed, that, uh, they, would, that they can protect themselves from that using a POLST form. And finding out from your provider um, how effective CPR might even be for you, I encourage everyone to do because that's important to know. There's a lot of misunderstanding about really what resuscitation is and who it works on and who it doesn't work on and what the outcomes are. And, and um, you know, we joke in the healthcare field in the olden days that we, you know, folks used to ask, well, if your heart stops, do you want me to restart it? Well, geez, of course. I mean, like you... Like it's an off-on switch. And it's so much more complicated than that, really. And uh, so much more individual. But in fact, uh, as we age and, and with underlying disease, CPR becomes less and less and less effective and runs a much higher risk of having uh, what many would consider to be unacceptable outcomes. Yeah, it's very different than what you see on TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you, um, yeah. We, can we get to question? Can we do this after? We, Where do you get a 
So there you go. Okay, go ahead. That was my next question. Okay, so no, no, it wasn't that. Isn't, I know people get it, but do you have a favorite? Okay. Do you have a, well, Pulse is different, but do you Pulse have a favorite of oh, Durable Power you. first? Um, I, I like um, I like the one from UCSF that Dr. Sudori has. That's that's one of the ones on our website. You can link to several of these on our website, um, which is uh, called the easy to read version. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a nice one. And I just saw a great one that was developed uh, down in Santa Barbara County. And uh, it is really a nice, thoughtful document. Um, it's called um, My Care, My Plan, I believe. And mm-hmm. I just saw that. But that's the kind of document that um, when they have their final version, they may be willing to to, um, to share with, with yeah. other counties. I don't, I don't see why that would be an issue, but I haven't right. explored that yet. Um, I have seen some, you know, some systems develop their own. Kaiser has one, I know. Uh, not my favorite, but a very effective document. UCLA has recently developed a very thoughtful advanced directive uh, that is also kind of in a booklet form. But the the two that I've seen recently that I like the best, I think, are still the Sudori version Um the easy to UCSF. read, the easy to read one, and then uh, this new one that I that I just saw down at Santa Barbara is is really a good one, and um, you know we're willing to to share those and yeah and, uh, and post? share them around. So post is only one form. It's statewide. Statewide yeah. travels with the patient. You own the pink one. Don't let them take the pink one. Um, if you have one, it should probably be in an envelope on your refrigerator or right on the back of your door or something. That's generally where uh, the EMS services are going to be looking for it. Some people have those the vial of life that they keep, I guess, in their freezers, the usual place. That would also be an okay place to have it. Um, but be- this is initiated with your physician. Oh, how do you get one? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a discussion with your physician or with a trained facilitator who can go through the conversation, which usually is somewhat lengthy because you're going to talk about choices for life-sustaining treatment and you're going to try and match that with your particular goals and values and your own approach to life. And um, so often you might have that conversation with a nurse or a social worker or even sometimes a trained chaplain, but more often someone with with more of a medical uh, technical background or your physician, and then you would review it with your physician and say, this is why I'm choosing this. This is why I'm choosing that. This is why I've made these decisions. And then the doctor signs it. So you sign it, meaning the patient signs it, and the doctor signs it. And then uh, that's, that's that. And then you keep the pink one and they keep a copy and a copy should always go to whoever your healthcare agent is, your medical decision maker who's named in your advanced directive. And I always encourage people to, if they've made decisions about those things, to let their family members know so people aren't surprised about your decisions in the moment. It's better that they're a little bit forewarned uh, because there's just so much emotion that happens uh, when someone really is is facing a life-threatening event, which is essentially when, when we're talking about using yeah. the POST form. Well, the POST has been an interesting and encouraging to a lot of us, uh, example of actual change. Mm, mm-hmm. It's not that old, but it's now becoming where uh, almost any patient you see with serious problem comes into an emergency room, for example, one of the first thing the emergency doctor, the people they're will looking be looking at, they're going, it. is there a pulse? Please let there be a pulse. I mean, and this didn't exist that long ago. And uh, one of the reasons that is, and that's very true, 
is because in that moment, particularly for a very frail or very ill or, you know, very, very elderly person, we know that we can do a lot of harm by overtreating. And uh, it's not always clear that the treatments that are going to be offered are truly going to be beneficial for that person. So if we know what they want, it's a much smoother pathway of care than not knowing and everyone's guessing and we just end up sort of needing to choose what you might even call a default or a kind of standard of care, even though what we consider standard of care might might not be something that person would choose if they were standing right next to us, right next to us saying, yes, no, right. maybe. And we don't mind whichever way the decision is. So the <clears throat> receiving physician in the emergency department who who has a family member that has has collapsed or something has gone wrong, if the pulse form is there and it says, please do everything no matter what, that's fine. We'll do everything no matter what. We're just very happy to know what this patient had wanted. And then we have time for some conversations with the family about, well, what were they hoping for? What would a good outcome look like? How hard should we push? Um, is the ICU okay? What are we going to do about this and that and the other thing? But that initial few minutes of, of treating someone who is in dire straits or crisis uh, it's very, very reassuring to the healthcare team to have that post form for, for individuals to know yes or no um, on resuscitation, first and foremost, but then also something else about what they're anticipating for the level of care or the intensity of intervention. Yeah, it's true, as you say, that the physicians uh, the don't care. They'll do what they think is best, mm. what the patient would want, but... It is also interesting that in the recent years there have been surveys of physicians about their preferred intensity of care of end of life, and it's much less than the, the general than public. what they offer to their patients yeah. because they see what it means. And actually, going back to one of your comments, hypothetical yeah. of having your decision maker on your durable power from Cincinnati or something yeah, like yeah. that, mm -hmm. something else a lot of us have experienced is that in a general sense, the farther away the decision maker is from the actual bedside, <laughs> yeah. you know, Uncle Joe in Cincinnati or whatever, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. more likely they are to say, do everything. Right. So unless they can actually be there and see what that means. Yeah. Um, yeah. So be careful about choosing somebody who's far away just because they're your closest family member or your best friend. They may not do the right thing because they don't want to feel guilty. They want to say, no, you can't, you know, you don't right. hook them up. Don't put them in an ICU, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and we understand that because um, it's human nature and it's, um, you know, it's, it's understandable psychology that there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with making these decisions. And if you're making the decision in a void, it's very easy to see just generically more treatment as more care. But we know that that is not necessarily the case and that more treatment is sometimes quite burdensome. And good care might in many instances mean different or less treatment. And we have to uh, accommodate for that. And the POLST really, really can help us. It's called the POST directive. Uh, it is just called the Pulsed, P-O-L-S-T. I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, There's actually didn't a website for it too, yeah. pulse.org. And I'll share that information. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most <laughs> dreaded questions uh, when you're taking care of somebody in that uh, 
looking at these really tough decisions is, what would you do if you were me? Mm, so mm-hmm. how did you or mm-hmm. do you answer that mm-hmm. when a patient mm-hmm. is saying, well, oh, this is overwhelming, mm-hmm. I don't know, what would you mm-hmm. do? Mm-hmm. It's something that, it's a totally le- uh, you know, logical question that somebody would ask, yeah. but it's a very difficult one. Yeah, good question. So it, I think it depends on the relationship that you have with that person and how you sense they might use your information. For example, I I would not want to inadvertently lead someone down down a path that, uh, that was my path, that I thought was my path. On the other hand, I would not want to refrain from sharing if I thought um, if I if I thought that would help them to make a better informed decision just from a more, you know, from sort of from a neutral wish to support them through the process. And um, the answer to that question might come in two forms. It, it might be a simple question like, well, I would do A or B, or it might be, I would do A, but my reasons are different from your reasons, or my reasons are these three reasons, and let's talk about what your reasons might be, and try to really understand how their values are coming into that into that decision. Personally, I don't mind uh, sharing about my own experience or um, giving my, my, my personal opinion, but when someone is weighing a very critical decision that I know they will reflect on potentially for the rest of their lives, uh, we have to be very careful about that. And I really try to support a neutral conversation, but in, in many cases, yes, I would share. And certainly in the setting where the statistics are overwhelmingly, you know, on kind of on my side. In other words, if if we really cannot anticipate more than a one percent chance of any kind of a reasonable outcome, right. you know, how 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 could I promote that plan of care for someone? I I can't. Yeah, you're not a surgeon. Yeah, that's what they do. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Other layers of complexity we, with that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we have to talk about the. Uh, controversial and obviously front page sometimes mm, issue of mm-hmm. physician-assisted dying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in California, this was legalized a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. You probably have read that in the last yeah. week, it was overturned at least uh, on a procedural, mm-hmm. political politics only, I mean, procedure only. It had nothing to do with the either the experience so far with the state of the, what has happened so far or the ethics of it, but it is the the challenge was filed by a right to life group. Mm-hmm. And so they were using this. And so, I mean, it doesn't look like that's gonna sustain, but obviously a very controversial issue through the years. And um, I would just like your reflections on how this fits into the whole, uh, mm-hmm. to your work and... and uh, well, as you as you pointed out, it's a very complex and emotionally laden topic. For, for most individuals. In terms of my work, um, because I work for the coalition um, and we do provide information about legislation that affects end-of-life care, we, we did step in as a neutral party to provide basic information about the legislation to providers, to organizations that needed to develop policies, to patients and families who just didn't really even know what it was. And um, 
So during that time, after it was passed, I learned a great deal about the legislation and how how it might work to protect someone's uh, wishes or values and how it might work to protect the perspective and voluntary um, participation of all parties involved, whether it's the patient or the provider or the system or the nursing home or the hospice or whoever it might be, and how all of those things interact. Uh, so logistically, it's it's complex. Where would you like me to take this? <laughs> well, I mean, it's on two levels. One is just your, your personal feelings about it, professional feelings, but mm-hmm. just how do you think it has or will have, and it's still early, Yeah, has had so far and will have an impact on end-of-life care okay, in yeah. California? So I chose, and many of us at the coalition, many of us who, who do this work, and I, I think Steve might agree with me, I chose to look at the passage of the legislation um, once it was happening and once you know people needed information. And, and, and we knew there was going to be a lot of media splash around this issue. To take that opportunity to highlight the fact that it's not just those patients who are interested in aid and dying who need to have thoughtful, careful conversations about their end-of-life care and who need to be protected against excessive pain and suffering. It's everybody. It's everybody. So... As we have been providing information about that one option, uh, which we know is talked about by many, many, um, asked about and requested by a few, and then actually utilized by an even smaller few, we we really uh, we really try to take some of the the skills that we are wanting to share in this area and and spread them around so that when providers out in the community or others receive questions about that option, that they are prepared actually to talk about end-of-life care from a wiser voice, from a better informed perspective, and to understand some of the communication skills that will help them to navigate that conversation. Again, not just with the patients who are pursuing aid and dying, but with anyone, which is all of us, who are at some point going to be facing our end of life because we are we are all 100% mortal. So that got incorporated into a lot of our um, information sessions, education, training, and so on. And it has it has been a bit of a wake up call for a number of institutions and organizations who realized, for example, that their palliative care resources were were minimal or insufficient to meet the needs of, again, this group of patients. But our argument is it's 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 all patients. It's it's all patients nearing end of life or facing serious illness who who need that kind of care and comfort and 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 conversation and support and process. Um, and so we have seen organizations and hospitals kind of start to look at this. We've been invited to do more more trainings and education to help providers communicate around the issue of death and dying and preparation for that and when to transition to hospice and how to do that or how to invite that conversation, how to elicit the patient's wishes. So it has sort of grown bigger than just that one issue. And I think in that way, it it's an opportunity to 
to change the way we're generally doing end-of-life care in California, which we know we don't do well at. I mean, we know this across the nation, the Dartmouth Atlas data, data from the California Healthcare Foundation, they all support the statement, unfortunate as it is, that we do an insufficient job with end-of-life care. And the most patients, as you already heard, are referred to hospice quite late. Um, and um, we have insufficient community networks to provide in-home care services for patients who need 24-hour services. Our whole culture and our society is just not wrapped around this important phase of life. Really, culturally and, and from a society perspective. So... Uh, you hear this all the time, Steve, because we talk about it at the coalition as kind of our mantra. We want to see culture change. We literally want to see a change in the way we care for our, for our wives and our elder and our infirm and our patients with dementia and our family members with confusion and, you know, and, all, and see that changed on a really grand scale. And that means changing these conversations from the kitchen table all the way up to the ICU. On, on the assisted dying issue, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. what, the way we looked at it, I was looking at it as like an acupressure point to the healthcare system yeah. for end-of-life care to yeah. kind of stimulate people to at least focus on this. Yeah. Um, and I think that has happened in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. um, on the more micro, the patient level, mm -hmm. um, my having experienced this a lot through the epidemic and so forth, my, um, and, and as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Many people ask about it. People mm -hmm. start to go through. It declines each time the people who actually need it. Mm -hmm. But people want that choice. Mm -hmm. And my unprovable theory is that if you could do a research project where you did the n amounts of months of life or years of life of people, that this actually extends life in the aggregate. Because a lot of people won't take a preemptive strike ahead of time. They'll get better care. So granting this to people actually extends their life more often than shortens it. That's my, mm. that's my well, this, ironic kind of theory about this. And I just, I saw it happen too many times to, you know, to, to disregard that. But there's a very distinct parallel to that. And that we mentioned earlier, which is the patients who get good hospice care mm -hmm. do, you know, do better. Right. So if we attend to the physical and existential suffering needs of patients, and your stress goes way down. Often your illness comes under control for a period of time. And we know that to be physiologically possible. And again, you're right. Those patients, because of the processes that were legally mandated to be developed, those patients got focused end-of-life care that was of their choosing. So in doing that, were they able to live a more comfortable life for the time that they had, had left? I would say probably yes. Um, whether or not they ingested the medication or mm. not. And could they have lived longer? Yes, in the same way that patients who receive hospice care often live longer than their counterparts who continue on the train tracks of uh, curative care and repeat hospitalizations and, and so mm -hmm. on. So I think, I'm, I'm yes. Do you uh, mm. personally feel that it can be an ethical practice as a, as a physician? You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Lael Duncan and host Steve Heilig. Yeah, I, I, I acknowledge the fact that there are 
we're all individuals. I think we all have a different approach to the way we live our lives and what we find to be of quality and how we make our decisions. That's true for buying groceries or getting a car or moving house or whatever we're doing. So that also applies for end of life. Everybody has their unique approach, their particular flavor of distress and concern and family interaction and so on. And there are undeniably a subset of individuals who absolutely, positively can only feel comfortable if they have that element of control over what happens. Or alternately, that they know in their minds that if they need to, they can be able to do something, meaning take the medication, that would allow them to avoid what otherwise would be unavoidable, unbearable pain and suffering in whatever way they define it. Not my definition of pain and suffering, mm -hmm. but their own definition. And if having that option relieves that distress for them, I, I, I don't think I can make that choice for someone else. Kind of a whose life is it anyway? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah. you know. As long I, as, yeah. in the big caveat, as long as that they've gotten optimal what they care. Need. Yes. Up and, to that you point. know, many people say, and, and I think in many cases it's true, if everyone got really superb, 100% best, best palliative care towards their end of life, I, I don't think we would have too many people who needed that option. But I'll tell you, it wouldn't go to zero. Right. It wouldn't go to zero because they're just, that's just how we are as humans. Some people want chocolate and some people want vanilla. And that's, that's the nature of our lives. Uh, from a more moral perspective, that gets very complicated. And um, yeah, people have a lot of strong feelings about that. One thing I encourage people to do is really just to have kind of a big heart around it and understand that people are asking these questions because they're worried about something. They're, they're concerned about experiencing something that they are, are afraid of or, or really are hoping to avoid. And that's a form of distress. And to ignore that or suppress it, we're increasing their suffering when we do that. So just to create space around that conversation and, and give some room for everybody's um, individual emotional response, whether it's one, one side or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, shifting gears a little, mm -hmm. you actually done some formal training in integrative care, competent care, acu mm -hmm. acupuncture and things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this serves a, can, can serve a real role in end of life care? Oh often? gosh, yeah, I, mean, I think that goes without saying. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, today, May 23rd to 2018, that you even need to ask that question. I, I just honestly feel that integrative medicine is, is really the only way to approach good care and that complementary care should be part of regular care. And if you want massage or Reiki or Tai Chi or herbs, you know, whatever, whatever is reasonable and healthy and, and working for you should be able to be part of your care plan. Um, so more so certainly in, in end of life. And we see that in its 
you know, most rudimentary form when we're adding chaplaincy and social work into the palliative care team. And very often there's a massage therapist on the palliative care team. And there might these days even be someplace like UCLA or UCSF, an acupuncturist who works with the care team. And then, you know, there's the music therapist that comes around. And then there's the aromatherapist that comes around. You know, so, um, yeah, I think that's really uh, people, I'm hoping people will have, more opportunities to access those integrative components of care that can round out a care plan for somebody whose quality of life truly is waning. And we, we need, I hope, to look at mechanisms to, you know, to support uh, a payment structure that will allow for that. Mm-hmm. Package deals, what I'd like to see, you know, really. So I mentioned Michael yeah. Pollan's appearance here next month in mm, this as well. And yeah, you told we, me before we started that you had been at a conference where you heard presentation on the kind of resurgence of research, at least in using psychoactive drugs like psychedelics and everything. Do you, have you had any uh, experience reporting as it's being discussed more in your circles in terms of end of life care, lessening Mm. suffering, preparing people for mortality, et cetera? Very good question. Yes. So researchers and Care providers are looking at this issue again. The opportunities that what we call psychedelic drugs offer to to a patient to, um, I would say, reframe or reboot the the neurobiology, neurochemistry, neuroendocrine situation that's that's unfolding at that time. If it's happening in a way that's distressful for the patient, so. Extreme existential distress at the end of life is something that can potentially be impacted by um, a psychedelic intervention, which is usually a witnessed use of of the drug and then a guided therapeutic uh, uh, guided therapeutic session while the drug is active, uh, intended in such a way to reinforce uh, a sense of safety and wholeness and optimism for the patient. This is done very carefully with, you know, like somebody at the bedside the whole time <clears throat> in a, in a um, sensory monitored uh, room to, to minimize the, any distress that might happen. Some of you may know that psychedelics uh, make you more receptive. It's almost like emotions become contagious. So <laughs> if you, uh, it, um, as I understand, if you are, um, Affected by these drugs, if you're you're high or whatever on them, or you're you're you've in, ingested or whatever you've done with them, um, if you're in a situation or a setting that's particularly anxious or nervous or a crowd or something like that, you're likely to have that kind of a response, but blown up and magnified. So we want to have them in a calm. They they need to be in a calm, very safe, very therapeutic setting so that their experience can be guided and managed. And this is in its early infancy for, for trials and things, but I have seen some uh, case reports and I know of several anecdotes where specific, carefully um, contrived interventions allowed patients to experience quite profound relief um, from their, their fears about about their impending death or what was happening with their illness. They're also looking at this to break uh, cyclical disorders that that are affected by um, the nervous system or have to do with nervous system function, such as addiction illness or, uh, or deep 
um, refractory depressions. In other words, we're kind of putting a wedge in and just re kind of rebooting the system a little bit. We don't understand how it works. There are membrane effects and all these other things going on. So the science is very young, but I do think that, uh, yes, I've heard of it. That's the short answer to the question. And do I think we'll hear more? Yes, I do. And I personally would like to be cautiously optimistic because you know, I've seen people suffering with profound refractory depression. And wow, if there were a way to break that cycle for them, I think that would be quite amazing. And and yeah. some patients experience tremendous tremendous uh, existential distress leading up to their their end of life. And if we have a way to minimize that, that isn't a sedating drug such as we currently tend to be using. Mm -hmm. um, what are the primary substances you've seen promise with? Well, uh, the psilocybins, I know they're looking at MDMA and related uh, chemicals, uh, LSD, probably, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and you know, probably they're looking at natural substances, they're looking also maybe at manufactured substances as well. <clears throat> it remains to be seen. I think this is in, in the early phase, but folks are looking at it. So you mentioned cultural change, and mm -hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago there was a big uh, whole week called Reimagining Death in San mm -hmm. Francisco, and yeah. it had like 80 events, far too many. You couldn't go to all of them, and some <laughs> of them had nobody there because there were too many. But the big finale was at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, which holds a thousand plus people, mm -hmm. and it sold out. And it didn't just sell out because there were some stars there, including from this town, et cetera, because the dialogue uh, was actually very kind of informed and it was really amazing. So I was up there sitting in the front with a few old hands in this, B.J. Miller and Frank Austin. Yeah. We were all, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for the people who were veterans of this, we were, it was hard to even listen to what was going on. We were gobsmacked by the fact that a thousand people showed up. Hmm. That was the main thing is this wouldn't have happened not that long ago that that many people came here to have an informed uh, dis discussion about this. Um, why do you think this is happening? I mean, it's, it's you know, I, what I always say was, you know, when I first started out, there was one book on the shelf, basically, mm -hmm. Kubler-Ross, you know, and now there are just shelves and, of, of books about death and dying. Death um, is cool, Steve. I think you should just get on the page with that. <laughs> no, I felt like I'd done it, and I'm like, there. But so, I mean, you know, it, there's an aging society. That's it's an true, aging society. There are more but of that us can't that are, be the only... No, I think know, there are so, more of us that are thinking about it for longer. Right? So we have the aging baby boomers, and the aging baby boomers are just healthier than, you know, than they were 50 years ago, than the aged were 50 years ago. Because our ability to treat and manage chronic diseases has fundamentally changed in the last 50 years, fundamentally. So there are, quite honestly, lots more folks that have a longer time to kind of think about this. I also think that... Um, Social media has played a role. I think that there may be societal and sociocultural um, changes that just support um, thinking about this. Uh, I think with the advent of palliative medicine and the focus on quality of care and patient-centered care, that 
that is part of it as well, because we're going to be asking about those things, meaning end of life or life-sustaining treatments. And, and then individuals have been instrumental, various different individuals who have been leaders in the area and have been thoughtful and have spoken out and chosen to take a stand um, and really on the national stage have changed how we talk about this. So I'm thinking of Atul Gawande for one mm -hmm. and um, you know Angela Volandez who wrote The Conversation. I think of uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door is another, another book that really brought this topic and I'm just blanking on her name. I can see her face right in front of me. Um, think of it in a moment. But so there have been a lot of uh, books that came out by people who were got on the radio and stood up at their conferences and said this is important and, and made a difference about it. And that then transitioned over into all these films that are happening. I, you know, cinema for a long time has been concerned with life and death and the afterlife, but um, in more of a the theoretical or I guess, what I want to say, kind of a thinking way, but uh, there have been some films, which I know you've seen, Extremis, Endgame, and so mm -hmm. on, that specifically are intended to bring up this conversation, to give people a window view of some aspect of the end-of-life experience that they may or may not be at risk of having or wish to have, but to have that be a starting place for a conversation. And then to have that available on Netflix, well, folks see that and then they're impacted by it and they talk about it. And then they find out there's a, a toolkit they can use to, uh, to show the film in their own community and to discuss these things and to see how people feel about it. So I think people are, people are curious. I may think ultimately maybe we're curious about what's on the other side and we hope the more we talk about what's on this side, we'll find out what's on the other side. <laughs> I don't, but I don't know about that. Um, but I think there's been a lot written about how badly it can go. Yeah. And um, I think rightly so. Folks are concerned about that. I am. I think we all should be because the standard, the usual, the default right now it's probably just not going to be what, what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, we have time for a couple questions, probably, and then we want also to get you to be able to say whatever in terms of resources that people are asking okay. about yeah, the best. So, but does did you have a brief question here? And then here? you want to be the caller. Go you want ahead. Me to be the caller? I, have, oh, either I way. just have a comment from a different perspective. Oh, please. I am a pastor rather than a medical expert and I am noticing today that there is a lot of existential dread <laughs> surrounding global warming and species extinction mm. and that with that in the background people are having to confront death in a way that 20 years ago they didn't. Yeah. You can hear more about this. Uh, we will have it posted. We did a big talk upstairs just last month with Joanna Macy talking about that yeah. in, in a lot of ways too. So, yeah. you know. Back to advanced directives. Yes. How do you, as a physician, feel about five wishes? It's pretty good. Five wishes. It's great. I think it's great as a as a workbooklet. I 
it kind of came out after I was sort of coming out of the hospital. I was not so much in hospitals anymore. I have heard from some uh, some healthcare organizations that it, it was, for some reason, a little bit problematic or not quite so clear um, when they were tr- interpreting it in the healthcare setting. I'm not really sure why that is, but I, I do <clears throat> want to share that with you. I think it's a it's a nice, thoughtful work booklet um, to use. Certainly could be a supplement to an advanced directive if somebody wanted to do that because it's got the thought questions in it. It's got the reflections in it and the recommendations to share the information, which I think is very, very, which is important. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Others? Covered everything. That's great. I can't believe it. No, <laughs> it's not possible. So There's do so you much. have, I mean, as far as a website, your own, to where people can find more that oh, you think is gosh, best yeah. advanced directives to? So on our website, which is coalitionccc.org, that's the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California, you will find... Uh, a tab across the top with a bunch of topics. You hover over those and you'll see tools and resources uh, for advanced care planning and for the POLST also. And that will take you to a page where there will be several drop-down menus of resources, including PDFs and handouts that you can that you can just download for free and print and information about the POLST, about advanced directives, several different types of advanced directives and on all of that sort of stuff, as well as an additional list of other online sources for advanced care planning. I would list also the Conversation Project through the IHI, which is really a good one, um, National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. And again, these are all on our list that you can get on our website. I would encourage you to look at the uh, website C-A-P-O-L-S-T dot org. That's the California Post website that will give uh, specific information and our site links to that one, of course. Um, What are some other good, good basic ones? Prepare for Your Care is a website that's available in Spanish and English and soon to be in Chinese. That helps folks walk through the advanced care planning process. It has some demonstration videos that will show you samples of how to have a conversation with your uh, your family member or the person who's going to be your advocate or your medical decision maker. Um, it kind of gives you instructions and opportunities to to create an advanced directive. Which was that again, please? It is called Prepare for Your Care. Thank you. Yeah. Prepare for your care. I think it's .org, prepare for your care. That's also listed on our, if you're on our website and you get the list, the sheet that says list of online resources, I think prepare for your care is on there as well. Uh, those those would get you started, right. I think. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes, that's a lovely book. Lovely book. That's, that's really a good one. Yes. What is it? Knocking on Heaven's Door, and why am I blanking, I'm on, blanking her name? on her because name? Because she's too. a local author. She's from Marin. I know, and I'm picturing her face right here. And she spoke at our conference the other year. Yes. If you had mm-hmm. a 96-year-old mother, mm-hmm. what film would you watch with her to start this whole conversation? Oh. Golly, ah. Uh. Sound of music. <laughs> 
you want to distract you know, it depends somebody. Depends <laughs> on what headspace she's in right now. I mean, how open she is to the conversation. I wouldn't want to throw something in her face that would maybe be frightening or startling. Um, I might start with one of the short, uh, you know, the video clips that are on YouTube. Uh, so on YouTube, there are a couple of uh, video clips that were put together several years ago uh, through a grant with um, with our organization and the Co and the California Healthcare Foundation, and they are under the title "Reflections on End of Life Care Honoring Choices." You can tell how much the field has changed because five or six years ago when I would go on YouTube to look for videos about advanced care planning or end of life, there was almost nothing. And now you get so many hits, you it's hard. It's actually hard to find the one you're looking for. So reflections on end of life care, honoring choices. There are five videos. Um, I would recommend the one called Raymond and the one about Maria as, as starting. And those are just two or three minutes long. They sort of indicate the need for advanced care planning and talk about what a benefit it is for the family, for the survivors, for the decision maker. And I might start with something really mild like that. Just say, you know, and then um, Endgame is very, is, is a beautiful 40 minute film. It's on Netflix now. Our colleagues put that together. Um, it is following a couple of patients as they journey through a hospice care situation. It is, um, it's, it's tearful as these things are. Um, and it brings up, you know, a number of questions to reflect on. Another one is Jessica Zitter's. Uh, That's extremis. Yes, which is the one that is the, the one that I say is kind of, can be disturbing for some, yeah. for some families because it is very, from the opening scene, bam, you're right in the ICU. It's hospital-based. There is like, yeah. very, very um, intense emotional suffering going on. Uh, the uncertainty about the care pathway, I think, is quite palpable in that film. And uh, it's, I guess that's kind of what I liked about yeah. it, is, is, that it, is that it made the point that the, I'm just basically, basically building on your advanced care directive desirability thing because yeah. what she says all the way through that is like had we had we post, known had, had we, we had known. the advanced care directive and that's you know so, yeah. so it's a big motivator to, i yeah, think it's, it's a big it's, motivator yeah, scared straight yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah anything you're going to show to a family member to spark the conversation i just recommend you see it yourself and see how you think it will resonate with them but i think extremis is extremely well done i think endgame is also extremely well done but you can use regular film. I mean, you, you could use the Pixar film Coco, which is all about death, right? What are you hoping for? What you know? It, you can use any 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 film like that to sort of open the topic. The Descendants was one too, mm -hmm. where she was in yeah. the ICU in a coma for a while, and if there was some uncertainty about that, uh, you'd be surprised. There are lots of films that <laughs> that. That touch on this fabulous, this is part of that cultural topic. change you're talking mm -hmm. about, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Lael Duncan, yeah. thank you so very much for coming here today, oh, and thank you, thank you all as well. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Lael Duncan and host Steve Heilig. 
Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.